This morning is from Joshua chapter 3. I'm going to pick up where we, where we left off, which was apparently verse 14. Hear the word of God. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people... And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in to the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the sea of Arabah and the Salt Sea were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So my sermon this morning is not a Father's Day sermon, but I wanted to just say a few uh, words to you this morning. Um, I had a, a woman in my office this past week. And she was brought to tears by the fact that her husband wasn't with her in church. And so for those of you dads who are here, I, I want to say thank you uh, for your role in your children's lives and in your wives' lives. If you look at church membership figures for hundreds of years, women have always outnumbered the men. I don't think women are holier than men. And so I often puzzle about this question, where are the men? And so you men who have shown up, thanks be to God for you showing up. Your children need to see you in worship. Your wife needs you next to her in worship, supporting her. Don't subcontract out the spiritual education of your children to the women folk. Take your part. Play your part. Your children need to see your spiritual life as much as they need to see your wives' spiritual lives. So for those of you men who've shown up today and who show up and are part of, of the religious life of your children, I, w- I want to I wanna bless you and I want to ask God to continue to bless you as you play this uh, important role in the lives of your family. All right, that's all I'm going to say about Father's Day. I want to talk about Joshua this morning. Last year I preached on Father's Day. My, my daughter reminded me I preached on Father's Day last year. I don't remember. I don't remember what I preached last week. So let's focus on what, what's in front of us. So there is a dramatic and a thematic and a poetical repetition in the story of the crossing of the Jordan. The crossing of this river, which happens during flood time repeats the dramatic escape from Egypt across the Red Sea. In both cases, the water which could easily drown and destroy the people is piled up harmlessly on one side, and the people of God cross over on dry ground. 
Two jaw-dropping miracles, 40 years apart, strangely similar, and each one of these miracles unfolds in the course of a single day. There was a brief window of opportunity for escape. The water doesn't pile up forever. The the offer of the uh, crossing into greater freedom and to greater security is not an unlimited offer. It's for one day. Now's the time to cross. Now these two events, the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan, these two events are brief. They're unique episodes in a larger story, in a longer narrative arc, in what theologians call salvation history or the history of redemption or Heilsgeschichte, if you take your theology in German. So before we dig into the crossing of the Jordan River, I want to talk a little bit about salvation history and about why it's important in our reading of Scripture and in the right understanding of our own individual lives. God's salvation doesn't happen all at once. And God's revelation isn't given all at once. These things unfold more and more over time. The Reverend Alexander McLaren, the pastor at Union Chapel in Manchester, England, said that God often opens his hand one finger at a time. We live in time, our histories unfold one day at a time, but God is outside of time, but he sees all of time in a single glance, which is why it's not remarkable that God knows the future. It's easy for him, because he sees all of history at one time. Think of it this way. You're taking a leisurely drive on a picturesque country road without the benefit of a map or your smartphone or a GPS. And to make the story really good, at the end of the journey will be a lovely used bookstore. Now as you drive along this country road toward your destination, the scenery comes Toward you piece by piece. There's this graceful bend in the road. And there's that narrow one lane bridge. And there's this field of flowers. And there's that pothole to be avoided. And there's this spreading panorama as you crest a hill. And then of course there's always the final destination. The blessed bookstore. Each pleasure and challenge of the road comes to you piece by piece. And you deal with them and you enjoy them as they come. And all the while, you never forget where you're heading. That's what it's like to live in time. To live day by day. Not exactly sure of what we're going to encounter next, but knowing that we're bound for glory. Now, in contrast to that view of our lives, for the person with a satellite view, For the person floating above it all in the Goodyear blimp, the entire road with all of its hills and curves and dips and bends and the final destination bookstore, all of it is visible simultaneously, which is how God sees our lives. God who is above time, outside of time. That's how God sees all of salvation history. A story that begins in the Garden of Eden and finds its destination in the New Jerusalem. God knows the beginning from the end. 
God knows every bend and curve in the road of our lives. God knows the history of the universe. And He knows it not because He's a prophet with a crystal ball peering into the distant future. God knows the future because God creates the future. And He creates the future according to His eternal, timeless plan. Paul hints at this in Ephesians chapter 3 where he writes, To me this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known now to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now listen to those words carefully. Leave that up there on the screen. To bring to light what is the plan of the mystery hidden in the ages. And this was according to the eternal purpose that was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, God in His eternal purposes has a road map. He has a plan for the course of history, for the course of salvation history, and for the course of our history. We don't know the plan. I mean, we know parts of it. But we know that God has a plan. Because He's God. Because He's made everything. Because He's never taken by surprise. Because He creates the future. Because nothing happens without His sovereign command. God has a plan. And God's plan is good. And God's plan will come to pass. This we know. Now I'm the kind of person who likes to know all of the details of what's going to happen. And I can be anxious when I don't know all of those details ahead of time. That's part of my personality that can be annoying to some of the people in my life. If I drive into the city to go to a restaurant with my wife, I don't even get out of the driveway before I'm thinking about, worrying about, where am I going to park? And will the parking meter take a credit card or do I need quarters? And are there any quarters around here? Did I bring my wallet? My wife is the sort of person who never worries about anything. She always trusts that things will work out beautifully. There will be a parking space right in front of the restaurant. It often comes to pass. We have every reason to believe that things will work out for us, if we are in Christ, if we're not in Christ, well, we're in for a heap of hurt. But if we are in Christ, the words of Scripture and the unchanging nature and character of God should be sufficient to convince us that all will be well with us, both now and forevermore, thanks be to God. God's overarching plan, a plan that is according to His eternal purpose, is what we call salvation history. It has a beginning in the Garden of Eden. It has a destination in the New Jerusalem. It has a midpoint, an axis, on which all of that history turns, and that midpoint is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
The cross of Christ is the center of human history. And the cross needs to be the center, the turning point of our histories as well. The cross is a unique, unreplaceable, unrepeatable moment in the history of God's plan for this creation. It needs also to be a unique, unreplaceable, and unrepeatable moment in our salvation history. Crossing the Jordan, which is our topic today, is also a unique, unreplaceable, unrepeatable moment in salvation history. The crossing of the Jordan was part of God's plan from all eternity. It was one small but unique step along the way to establishing God's people in the land that God has set aside for them, governed by a law that God had given them. Around 1,200 years later, arising up out of God's people, shooting up from the stump of Jesse, living in the promised land, fulfilling God's law, will be Jesus Christ. The Son of God. And it will be Him, Jesus, who will die a sinner's death to atone for our sins. The cross of Christ is the unique and final sacrifice which makes all further sacrifice entirely unnecessary. Let me offer a parenthetical comment here. No sacrifice that we make adds to the death of Christ. We're not saved by the death of Jesus plus our good works. We're not saved by the death of Jesus plus our suffering. We're not saved by the death of Jesus plus our obedience. We're saved by the death of Jesus alone. He is the atonement for our sin. Any attempt to add to the completed work of Christ is idolatry. It's an attempt to add honor to ourselves by stealing that honor from Christ. John Calvin said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. And one brand of idolatry that we Christians are susceptible to is the idol of our own holiness. The idol of our own righteousness. We can act as though our salvation somehow depends upon our efforts. We are, scripture tells us, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's what Peter tells us. But our holiness, our righteousness is an imputed holiness, an imputed righteousness. It's not something that we accomplish through our effort or through our discipline. Imputation means that God, as our judge, makes a judicial decision and declares us to be righteous and holy. Not because of our action or our obedience, but because of God's decision and the action and obedience of Christ. We're united to Christ through faith. That's what faith does. Faith links us to Christ. And by faith we become part of the body of Christ. We become part of the bride of Christ. And as part of the bride of Christ, as part of the body of Christ... God grants us all of the rights and the privileges belonging to our spouse, to Jesus Christ. I think this idea of imputation is hard for us to accept because we believe in getting what we deserve. We believe in working for what we have. But maybe we can think about imputed righteousness this way. A a person, a person who has purchased a house... 
has the rights and the privileges regarding the house that she owns. She can live there. She can arrange the furniture any way she wants. She can even sell the house and use the money for a lifetime supply of Twinkies if she wants. The rights of ownership are hers because she bought the house. Now, imagine that you are a lazy bum. You've never held a job in your life. You've never saved any money that's passed through your hand. You don't have a house. But guess what? You can marry a woman who does have a house. And as soon as you marry her, the laws of the comp... This is not advice, guys, okay? This is, this is an example, okay? It's the principle that I'm after here. As soon as you marry her... The laws of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, by judicial imputation, make you a homeowner too. The law declares that, even though you're still a bum. And you get to live in that house, and you can rearrange the furniture any way you want. And if your wife agrees, you can even sell the house and buy Twinkies. That's how it is with us in Christ. When we're joined to Christ in faith, we gain the rights and the privileges that Christ purchased through his obedience, through his death. It's an imputed righteousness. We don't do it ourselves, but God gives it to us. Here's how Paul puts it. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know I'm supposed to be preaching on Joshua, but I'm having a little hard time leaving Romans behind. So let me try again. In his life, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, all demands of God's law. Jesus lived a perfect and a sinless life. That's what made him the unblemished Lamb of God who could die to take away the sins of the world. But before that could happen... The people out of whom Jesus would spring, the people of the law, the people of the promise, the people of the covenants, these people would need to enter the promised land. The entry into the promised land was one of the bends in the road of salvation history. And God, from his perspective of eternity, has always seen that entire road. At a single glance, as a unified whole, which means that your salvation, my salvation, depends as much on the crossing of the Jordan River as it does on the cross of Christ. Each one of these unique events in salvation history are part of a seamless whole, an inseparable whole. All of these unique events are part of God's eternal plan. Now, I don't know how many Israelites crossed the Jordan on that day. It was a lot, hundreds of thousands, something like that. The instructions are precise. The Ark of the Covenant carried by priests leads the parade. The people follow behind at quite a distance. They're to stay back from the Ark so that they can see it and follow it. Okay, so like if they're all huddled up around the ark, they're not, people in the back aren't going to know where it is. And so the ark is supposed to be out there almost like a mile out in front of them. So everyone in the whole huge crowd can see where it's going. Here's what we read in verse 4. There shall be a distance between you and the ark, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go. 
For you have not passed this way before. The ark leads the people. And the people follow. Now, remember for a moment what the ark is. And remember what it contains. And remember where it's been and where it's going. A couple of weeks ago, Ken Pretty, the Reverend Dr. Ken Pretty from the EPC's Ghost Center was with us here to talk about church vitality. And in talking about what churches do in the world, he distinguished three things. Number one, the content. Number two, the context. And number three, the container. The content is what the church communicates. It's the Word of God. It's the Gospel. The content doesn't change. The church has been preaching the same thing for 2,000 years. Any organization preaching something different is not a church. The content is what the church communicates, and that content doesn't change. It's no, there is no such thing as updated content in the life of the church. There is only one gospel. So that's the content, the Word of God. The context is the community that's served by a particular congregation. The context can change. The neighborhood can change. A church can choose the context that it wants to serve. Serving in Huntington Valley, Pennsylvania is different from serving in Neosho, Missouri, for example. But even within the same town or the same city, a church can choose to serve different segments of the community. For example, in this congregation, we do not serve a Russian-speaking population, even though there are many Russian-speaking people very close to this church building. Our context, partly determined by where we are, partly determined by 101 decisions that we've made through the course of the years, our context at this moment is an English-speaking Bible-believing, all-ages, multi-ethnic family that you see showing up here on any given Sunday. That's our context. That's the context at this moment in the history of this congregation. So first there's the content, then there's the context, and finally there's the container. The container is just the box that carries the content to the context. When I think of containers, I think of those clever fold-up wax paper boxes that Chinese restaurants use for their takeout food. Now, they could use a plastic tub. They could use a styrofoam box. But they don't. For whatever reasons, they use a wax paper fold-up box. The food inside the box, the container would still be Chinese if it came in a plastic tub. It would still be Mugu Gai Pan if it came in a styrofoam box. The container doesn't change the content. But a container is chosen strategically because it works best, given both the content and the context. Healthy and vital churches are smart and flexible when it comes to their container so that they can do a better job of getting the content, the gospel, to the context, to the communities they serve. Stuck churches are often married to the container rather than to the content. 
Now, the Ark of the Covenant, this is all about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is just a container. It's just a wooden box covered in a little bit of gold, carried between a couple of poles. What's important about the Ark of the Covenant is not the Ark, but what the Ark contains, which is the written Word of God as it's come down on stone tablets from Mount Sinai. Take those stone tablets out of the Ark, and it's nothing more than a fancy footlocker. It is the content, the revealed Word of God, which leads the children of Israel as they march into the new context, into the Promised Land, The children of Israel are physically following a physical copy of the Word of God. This is a kind of visual, physical metaphor here for what needs to happen at an invisible, spiritual level. Wherever God leads us as individuals, wherever God leads us as a congregation, may we be those people who are following the Word of God. May we always keep our eye on the content of the ark so that we know which way to turn because we've never been this way before the christian pilgrimage is always full of new surprises and so we just keep our eye on the word of god and we follow it lead uh, as it leads us wherever it may just as the mercies of the lord are new each morning so too are the paths in which the lord leads his people As is true of the church, for the children of Israel, the word of God is their identity. It defines who they are. It distinguishes them from the surrounding nations. And as the children of Israel are moving into the new context, as they march into the land of Canaan, they need, above all else, to know who they are and to remember whose they are. A great tragedy in the church is when children of the covenant leave home and enter the world without the word of God sufficiently written on their hearts. When they leave their families and enter the larger world and forget who they are and whose they are. The world loves to tell us who we are. The world is not shy about preaching every moment of every day in every channel and in every language. The world isn't shy about preaching its own gospel. It's all-embracing alternative to the Word of God. That counter-gospel is being preached 24-7 across every medium around the planet. And if we do not have the eternal word of God stored in the ark of our hearts, we soon find ourselves singing the same song that the world sings. We find ourselves conformed to the world rather than transformed by the renewing of our minds. When the children of Israel head into the new land, they keep their eyes on the ark of the covenant, on the word of God that is hidden there. There is no other way for them to know which way to go. And there's no other way for them to remain the children of God. There is a thematic and a dramatic and a poetical repetition in the story of the crossing of the Jordan. Crossing this rain-swollen river repeats the dramatic escape from Egypt across the Red Sea. Two jaw-dropping miracles, 40 years apart. Strangely similar, each 
miracle happening in a single day, a brief window of opportunity, an opportunity to fly to greater freedom and security in the embrace and in the care of Almighty God. Two moments in salvation history. As the people of God, we remember and we repeat these stories of what God has done in the past, in our past, in the in the past of the saints who've gone before us. We remember these things to bring Him honor and glory, but also to remind ourselves that God is trustworthy, that God is reliable, also to more fully appreciate the grandeur and the sweep of salvation history. These stories also remind us that salvation history has a personal side. God, of course, supernaturally rescues and saves an entire nation, removes them from slavery and gives them freedom. But salvation happens not only on a grand scale, it also happens on a personal scale. God not only rescues and saves the nation, he also rescues and saves individuals. And that means that each person who is in Christ has his or her own salvation history. For each one who is in Christ, there is a day-by-day unfolding of God's story in their lives. God, of course, sees our whole lives from beginning to end in a single glance, but we experience our lives the way that we experience a drive on a picturesque road, one scene at a time, one curve in the road at a time. If we're in Christ, we have confidence in our destination. If we're in Christ, we also have confidence in knowing that whatever comes at us on life's road, whether it is a beautiful scene or a hazardous passage, we have confidence that God knows the whole road and that in all of these things, God is inexorably drawing us toward himself. Salvation history operates at a planetary scale. But it also happens in individual lives. Remember that Jesus put the 99 sheep into the sheepfold so that he could go out and search for the one sheep that was missing. Because all 100 of those sheep belong to him. And he knows the name of each one. I don't know where things are between you and God this morning. Are you part of the household of God? Have you been united to Christ through faith? Or are you still wandering around on your own trying to prove that you don't need a Savior? Trying to prove that you've got it all under control by yourself? If you hear God's voice this morning calling you to follow Him, to follow His unchanging word, to enter into his rest and into his promised land, then I encourage you to not hesitate. I encourage you to jump at the offer because it may never come again. The window of opportunity can close. If you hear Christ calling you to himself this morning, follow him. It's a decision you'll never regret. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you and we bless your name. And Lord, we thank you for these stories of 
your guiding hand in these ancient people's lives. We thank you that those steps in salvation history have been recorded for us and that we can read about them today. Lord, I pray that you would let us see and observe your hand in our lives. And we may see where it is that you have been at work in our past and that you might give us a a picture of where it is that you're leading us in the future. We know that you're God. We know that you see all of time in a single glance. We only see it a little bit at a time. We pray that you give us the confidence and the trust in you that we might lean into you and have faith in you. Follow you. And know that you are the one that can hold our future. Father God, we pray that you would be present with us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us the peace that comes through knowing Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.